All right, welcome back to podcast number two for Totem Realty Advisors and keyword today being advisors. So we're going to talk about uh, the difference between advisory work and brokerage work, I think is the topic du jour. Is that correct? It is. It is. Yeah? It is the topic du jour. And what's the bourbon of the day since we're constantly going to have a bourbon participate in our meetings? Today's episode is brought to you by the good folks at Four Roses <laughs> with their small batch select. I think it's, it's a combination of six different barrels. Is that what it said? Well, I don't have my glasses on, so you All could right. read that component of it. <laughs> All right. Well, while you are... Six unique bourbons. Filling up the glass, I'm going to read an interesting uh, message that we received from a client recently that I think goes straight to the point of... Uh, advisory versus brokerage. It says, I noticed a posting today. I'm assuming that means LinkedIn, by the way. But a posting today from a top, parentheticals, top brand name in real estate. It highlighted that the company was able to sell a building to its own customer for top price. It struck me as an odd way to describe the deal. I'm assuming that this customer would not like to learn that they paid top price for something mid-pandemic. Though, since the customer is tagged in a post, maybe the customer's ego is fed by this kind of, I can pay top price for something, or maybe there was a bidding war. Either way, it's notable difference in how Totem thinks about its responsibility. Hands down, one of the most humbling messages I've received. I was going to say, that's a good humble brag right there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, as a business owner, um, but fascinated to see what you guys think about that and how Totem has created that, uh, that differentiation with our clients. I think two things that I'd love to dig into are, one, the word customer is used throughout this, um, which I think is fascinating, the difference between customer and a client. We talk about that all the time, uh, that there's a substantial differentiation. But I'm also intrigued, Paige, from your perspective you know, how you ended up in this business and why Totem, because even in a, a, an interview process that we had with a potential client today, you know, it came up that from your perspective, the outside looking in this was not an industry you were interested in or respected much relative to the to the brokerage side of the yeah, things. Well, that sucks. It came across that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it, that's. Yeah, it's and that's not what I meant. And I mean, um, I think I even made a joke this morning after I said that and realized how it sounded that, you know, I hadn't had enough coffee and was still grumpy. But uh, <laughs> She's an early person. Don't get mm-hmm. anybody yeah. wrong. The whole team here, we all wake up real, yeah. real early. Oh, there's a slight. <laughs> so I come from a hospitality background prior to converting into commercial real estate and so it's just constantly like bending over backwards and putting other people's needs before your own. And and I never, I left a sales role to take the role that I took before coming to Totem, and I never wanted to be in sales again. Um, and I don't see my like I don't, I don't want to sell something to someone that they don't need, and I have a really hard time selling something that I don't also believe in. Everyone says in sales, you're only as good as your last quarter's numbers, or you're only as good as your last month's numbers, and that never resonated with me because I always felt like. If you build the relationship and if you build up the trust, then the next sale is easier, even though it's still a sale. And the next sale is easier because you have that rapport 
and you have that, the trust, and they, it's a more, it's like what you say with the turtle, (laughs) it's like a longer process, but those people, once they see the difference in the service you provide versus the service someone else may provide or the lack thereof, they will continually come back to you and it will result in downstream consequences that are much more favorable. But your your <clears throat> the first part is it between being an advocate or consultant is finding out what is it that the customer needs. And the salesman walks into a meeting and say, I have this and I have that. Mm-hmm. They're not listening to the most important person in the room, which is the customer or the client. And find out, I can't tell you what your solutions are unless you tell me what your problems are. Yeah. And kind of really research it and feel them out and find out, what are you trying to accomplish here? There's a million ways of solving a problem, but are you solving the entirety of the problem? And that's the, the main difference I find with being an advocate and being a consultant and being an advisor mm-hmm. is that you are finding out everything that you can about the company globally as a whole. What is it that we're trying to solve here? What you're not doing is you're trying to plug in a solution for the first problem that you see that very often is not even remotely close to what they actually need. And I think that too often in our industry, it's driven by product rather than problem. Well, and, and to circle back, I mean, I also think the typical employment model of our industry lends itself to that. Like if you're a 1099 employee and you don't collect a paycheck until you close a transaction, then you're, you're incentivized very heavily to make things work that otherwise might not be the best solution for your client. Um, and even if you are exclusively representing your client in this transaction, the overarching incentive for you as their, as their broker, their agent, is to close the deal so that you can collect a paycheck. Right. So, and that was another thing, like, I would not be in this industry if not for Totem because I knew at at the stage of my life that I was in when I was looking to make the transition, I couldn't have taken on that risk. Sure. And, um, but I I think the the model in general of having someone who is a 1099 employee that only... Independent contractor. Yeah. So that's like the difference between like customer and client. Like they're not employees. They're independent contractors who by sheer definition, are looking out for them, not for the organization. And I think the history of how this industry started, like there was no such thing as tenant representation at the beginning of... Of time when I started? (laughs) When Michael got into the business, there was no such thing as tenant representation. But there was, but... uh, They have office buildings then? Did... Yeah, did they, they horse they did. and buggy now? They, they built them on caves. It was really neat. <laughs> Yurts. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, I mean, it was a product-driven business. So you represented the person who had the product, and then you were in charge of going to find a customer for that product. Um, and if that customer paid more rent the owner of that building paid you more money, which that kind of makes sense, right? If um, you own a building and you hire somebody to find tenants for you and those tenants pay you more money, then it makes sense that the person who did that for you should get paid more. Um, But I think, you know, the tenant 
advisory side of the business or the buyer advisory side of the business, the really consultant side where the industry has kind of lost its way is that it still gets paid that way. So the landlord still pays, you know, tenant pays more rent, both brokers uh, make more money, which is kind of counterintuitive to what's right for the client. It's good for the customer per se, but it's bad for the client. Well, at the end of the day, nobody gets paid a fee until the tenant pays rent. Right. And when the tenant pays rent, so at the end of the day, the fee is baked into the cake of the rent structure. So ultimately, the tenant is actually paying for everybody's services or the user They're, or the purchaser. They are paying for everything. Until there's a transaction that's made, there's no money to be divided up. And that has lent into the fact that most of the compensation models for, what, 90 95% of right. the industry um, are all based on... Nationwide, not just yes, here, right? transactional. So consequently, advisors, brokers, and, you know, we are advisors. Other firms retain brokers. Um, everything is based on a transaction model where if I do this transaction, it's based on this amount of value, and it's a percentage of that. Even rewards are given, it's not just compensation, but accolades and, you know, making the million-dollar club. and Co-star yeah. power broker of the year. Power broker of the year. It's all <laughs> right. based on... What did you get somebody to spend? It's completely versus antithetical what you got them to say versus the person who's actually paying the money. Right. You know, you have someone who's, you know, hey, I'm I'm looking to solve this problem. I need X amount of feet. Well, how do you know you need X amount of feet? You know, you have to walk them through the process of what are the ways I can solve what it is that I'm trying to do. And if you make the wrong decision at some point in time, it's always going to cost you more money, and somebody else is going to be receiving that that compensation. So there was naturally a, a need for the advocacy model, for the advisor, the tenant advisor model, or the uh, or the investment sale model, where someone's going to go and say, "Why are you doing that? You should look at the world in this way or this way, or at least before you make a decision, have all your options open to you." Then it becomes the component of competing one landlord against the other. So it was a natural progression of what was going to happen to develop the, the, the tenant advisory role, the tenant representational role. Well, and if, I mean, a lot of times, like if you're the tenant and you're going to seek out space, the people that you're seeking out the space from, their world is commercial real estate. Whereas if you were the tenant going to look for space, that is not your world. That's not something you're well-versed in. So I'm sure it, there's also, like... It's still wild to me that more tenants or end users of space uh, don't better understand the options for representation that they have in going into that process. But I'm sure at some point in the table, some tenant got savvy to the fact that they were dealing with real estate experts on the other side, and they had no one on their side that really understood what was going on. Right. Um, and... That's what, I mean, I know that my experience is my experience, but other people haven't had the same experience. But I think it's still crazy to me that anyone would enter into a negotiation with a landlord that owns millions of square foot of space, and you make widgets, <laughs> and you've never signed a commercial lease in your life, and there's no one sitting on your side of the table with you. Uh, when you know that the person across from you has made 
all of their wealth by managing real estate. Right. Um, if their like, absolute expertise, Michael why always are you says, going what you're saying, you can, they can give you a quarter and take a dollar or what's... Oh, I mean, any. <laughs> that's the reason why a letter of intent is four pages and a lease is 54 pages. You know, I can give you a dollar and take it back seven times. Right. And you're agreeing to do it. And it's just not knowing all the aspects of this is the profit center. It's the, uh, you know, the Vegas thing. The house always wins. The landlord is the guy who's going to find a way to collect the money. And you are buying a service, but there, you can get it for less. And if you don't have someone that's negotiating on your behalf, right. and not just negotiating on the aspect of a price per square foot or X amount of square feet or the length of the term, there's a hundred other things that are going on in a lease, mm-hmm. maybe even more than that. And it, it you have to understand all of them. It's, and yeah. Like the, you said, the, the, guy who's, the guy who's making widgets, he has no clue yeah he is the rabbit in front of a den of wolves we're working on one right now which is crazy right uh so it's easy to play monday morning quarterback in this business so i try to hesitate away from that but it's a situation where the tenant they signed a lease four and a half years ago their lease expires in six months and they have a responsibility in the lease which i guarantee nobody ever read and whoever represented them on the the inbound lease didn't point this out to them but they've got the responsibility to replace the hvac equipment if it no longer works so they no longer need the space they no longer want to be in the market and they've got a thirty thousand dollar hvac replacement bill in front of them which has a life of what 30 20 more years (laughs) correct 20 years and uh the the unfortunate thing is they're asking for advice at this point, which it's really hard to give advice on that situation because it's really hard to fix uh, a document that's already been signed. But um, how do I get out of this obligation that <laughs> yeah, I agreed to in writing to. <laughs> five years ago? Right. That I didn't look at. Yeah, it's it's um, a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, and that's why you need somebody who's an advocate <clears throat> asking the appropriate questions. And finding the appropriate answers. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget <laughs> the first time uh, I signed an NDA. And you're like, what did it say? I'm like, I don't Hold know. on, rewind the tape. The, many people might not know what an NDA oh, is. The, a non-disclosure agreement. It's right. frequent if you're requesting information on a property that's maybe, you know, uh, there's income involved that the landlord doesn't want, obviously, the world to know what they're collecting in rents from the various tenants. Whatever the case may be, you sign a non-disclosure agreement saying that any information that you are provided on the property, you will not disclose it to anyone. It's the um, real estate equivalent of the Miranda warnings. <laughs> yeah. Which the first time I was like, oh, I hear, I hear them talk about signing NDAs all the time. <laughs> Got one, signed it. Isn't that the whole point of the podcast? All the things that you're like, oh, yeah, I just pretend like I know these things. So let's learn more F-ups. about it. <laughs> learn from my mistakes. Um yeah, I signed it, and uh, I told Kevin I signed it. He's like, what did it say? Just non-DA sh- NDA shit? <laughs> the look oh, I got, uh, I will never sign another NDA or any document. I was going to say any document. Any document. Any document. Because even though it's just a little signature that most people can't even read whose name it is, it's binding. These things binding. matter. Right. And it is wild to me, even though I literally just admitted that I did it, that 
like the things that people will sign their name on and think that it's not binding. I mean, just before Christmas, we had a deal that there was a purchase and sale agreement executed. It was days away from closing. There was no due diligence period. It was an as-is purchase, very quick turnaround time. And a day before closing, the buyer, we represented the seller, so they were our client. Um, the buyer called me and was like, well, this is going to require X, Y, Z, additional expense that I was not planning for. I went out. <laughs> Buddy, <laughs> a little late. I don't know what you thought that $30,000 you gave us was when you, you signed on the dotted line of this contract, but like, that means something. Right. And it's uh, the financial commitments that tenants and buyers alike make without having an expert in real estate subject matter and an expert in legal matter advising is wild to me. It's wild to me. And I think the part that is particularly the problem in our industry is that there very well could have been representation on one side that is providing brokerage services concerned with only a transaction and not advising their client and yeah. catching things like that. Yeah, it's should, unfortunate, we, should, but we, that's... should we dig into dual agency? Oh, boy. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I think uh, that should be a podcast all in of itself. Yeah. But the reality is... I mean, you just I mean... topped off my bourbon. I figured we were <laughs> oh, we want going ready in. For the, the rabbit hole is open? <laughs> well, I mean... I mean, you guys know my opinion. Dual agency doesn't exist. Like, I mean, I know it exists by state law. Like, Pennsylvania does recognize it. But how can you represent two people in the same conversation in the same transaction? I just, I mean, it goes back to actually where we started the conversation. Like, this post that our client saw, how do you, rec or how do you represent two different people in the exact same transaction? Yeah, and it's, I think... Um I am very slowly reading an interesting book um, called uh, Never Split the Difference, and it was written by Chris Voss. He was like a hostage nego negotiator. Oh, I need um, to read this. And he always says that a, a frequent mistake people meet in negotiating is just like taking the lazy way and like if one person says 10 and the other person says 5, you settle on 7.5. And he is, Which is beyond it's arbitrary. Such a sloppy, lazy right. way to negotiate, because in order to be a tactful negotiator, you need to understand the full scope of motivations on either side of the table. And it, like to your point, if the same broker is on both sides of the deal, you are very literally splitting the difference. No one. Well, you're not advocating. Yeah, you're, but that, and that's you're advocating for you to get a transaction done. And, that's and, exactly and, the, what and in the end, right. it becomes it just becomes a how can we appease both sides? It's not a win for anyone. Right. You're just appeasing both sides. Yeah, and I, I mean, I wouldn't even go so far as to say it needs to be a win for somebody because I don't think all negotiations need to end with a winner or a loser, but. How in that example 
can either party feel like their best interests were actually taken care of, right? It, it's just yeah. not possible. They can't. They can feel comfortable about the transaction that they made. The outcome. They might feel comfortable about, you know, the relationship they built with the person that they were, um, you know, doing business with. But there was not an advocate on either side. No. It was just I mean, someone who facilitated a transaction. Facilitated, right. And I guess if, if you go into a negotiation and you know you want to be in this building, like you know this is the space for you for whatever reason, and you're willing to pay more or whatever the case may be, um, I guess maybe then you wouldn't care. But, but, I, but I think you do, and I th- that's actually a really good... Uh, segue to the the project we just worked on down south where client absolutely said we are going to be in this building no matter what which makes it really hard on us to create the best leverage but they said we're going to be here this is where we're going to be end of story but at the end of the day um, the landlord was going to invest a pretty substantial amount of money in the space and the landlord wanted to cap that at a certain dollar amount. They wanted to say, all right, we're going to invest $65 a square foot. Well, construction prices are rising astronomically right now. So we sign a lease. What happens if construction pricing raises another 10, 10%, 20% between the time that we sign a lease and we actually do the construction? So, you know, from a, a win perspective, it didn't feel like a great win because we didn't get them the best rate. They actually probably are paying a premium relative to the market, but we did convince the landlord to absorb all construction risk. So, signed the lease yesterday. Construction prices go up forty percent tomorrow. Not our client's problem. Yeah, and I, I'm going to go back to the advocacy part of it. When you initially met with your client, they told you this is what we want. This is the this is the outcome we were looking for. And your job is to go down the road and protect them as, you know, their their desire to be in that building might not be the same if they got a $50 a foot construction bill and you solve that part, part of it. Right. You're asking them, what is what is what do you want to accomplish? What is your reason for that? That doesn't mean we're giving them the reasons. We're just advising them on these are the things that can go wrong. These are the things that can happen as we go through this process. I'm trying not to use my hands as I talk, and I find it to be very, very <laughs> difficult. I got yelled at this the other day. But um, no, it's just you're, you're, you, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What are you looking to do? And let me map out the path for you because there's a lot of lions and tigers and bears out there, and you want to make sure that a transaction is one moment in time. But your life in this space is going to be for a very long period of time. And maybe you're not going to be as, as uh, happy once you get into the space. You want to make sure that you're protected all the way through it. And there's not, you know, that goes back to the this, oh, it's square footage or a size of space. There are a million other things that you can negotiate to protect someone mm-hmm. as you're advocating for them. Yeah. And even still, I mean, uh, I don't know how... I don't know how anyone outside of this industry can understand the difference, like truly understand, you know. I think a lot of people get caught up in the, this is the rate per square foot here, and this is the square footage, and this is what I'm paying. <laughs> I'm two years, more than two, over two Cocktail years in now. Cocktail party I'm over estate. two years in now, and I still call Kevin on a monthly basis. <laughs> 
Uh, where's this going? And I'm not say sure. that this is quoted as modified gross, but this isn't adding up. And he's like, well, that's <coughs> their definition of modified gross. <laughs> like, it, uh, and right. even within the industry, people in the industry, landlords that do this day in and day out, it's never the same. So until you really dig layers, layers deeper, which even two years in, <clears throat> I still have to question it every time. Uh, I say I still like it's been a long time. Like I have to question it every time. Uh, I don't know how as the tenant who never plays in this space, you could navigate that effectively. That's because they don't know. Well, right? you, and that's the, the true value that you bring, way beyond whatever fee you're going to pay an advisor. The true value is because that's the gift that keeps on giving. You make a mistake at the lease signing, right? And that's a price that escalates constantly. Uh, we have another client that, um, I, off the top of my head, I don't know the exact numbers, but uh, you know when they went into their space, let's say they were paying twenty-two dollars per square foot. Well, that number right now is closing in on forty, with all the operating expense pass-throughs, because the entire risk of operating that building was transferred to the existing tenants even that if are it's in the space. 90% vacant. Even if it's 90% vacant. Right. The cost of operating that, and that was all fully agreed to and went through legal process, scrutinized by those guys, and they missed it because they don't do what we do. They don't see the reasons or the ways that a landlord can extract that money from you. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. it something like when they got the annual bill, it was equal to like three months of their rent Six. or something? Oh. Yeah, six months. And they get that surprise package every year. And their lease was, what, 15 years? It was a long-term lease, so there was an obligation that they know whatever happened then is going to happen now. And unfortunately, we are, are the guys that give them the news, oh, by the way, wait till you see next year's bill, because these are the things that are going to occur. Right. And there's no, there's no disincentive to the landlord because he's got somebody else paying his bills. He's transferred the risk of operating the property to the tenants. So should we talk about exclusivity or do you think sure. we've discussed that enough in what we've already? No, I don't think we've about. talked about exclusivity so much. I mean, I feel also, like it could be an entire topic. Is and, it in fuego in here or <laughs> is it me in the bourbon? Because it might be you in the bourbon. I am on Fire. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to stay on the tenant advisory topic for a moment. Just detract from my premature hot thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Just to say the tenant advisory thing, you know, we don't just represent tenants. We represent investors that are looking to operate their property more efficiently. So if these are somewhat market conditions, you actually know that this is these are how buildings are operated. And sometimes they don't even understand what's in their leases <laughs> to make the lease more profitable. What? No, well, no, I can't uh, say that out loud. These are, these are all things that, that if you know, if you're hiring someone who's truly skilled at their craft and understands real estate, they're going to understand it from both sides of the table. Mm -hmm. from, uh, even, even if you're at an octagonal table, yep. they're going to understand it from the lending side, from the leverage side, from the... Uh, operational side, from the tenant side, from the landlord side. This is everything that goes into that stew that's uh, commercial real estate. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was having a discussion the other night. Well, it was a couple months ago now. But um, with someone who's, I mean, very 
a very successful, a well-respected guy in uh, the Pittsburgh commercial real estate world. And uh, he was saying that generalists in commercial real estate don't work, that you can't be a generalist, that you can't, you can't be on both sides of the deal, you can't work in industrial, you can't work in office, you have to have a specialty, you have to have a silo. And I, I disagree. I mean, I was certainly not going to look this man in the face who's been in the business for 40 years probably and say that, but that didn't make any sense to me because how can you be a great tenant rep agent or tenant rep advisor if you've never seen things from the landlord's perspective, if you don't know how the yeah. landlord's assessing a hundred percent. And you know, and then I think the difference between industrial versus office versus retail, the strategy is all the same. The framework is all the same. Yep. There are, but there are diff- I just, I was like, I was very surprised sure. by that comment because it's like, how can you be good at a game if you only know one position? But I think where that's coming from, and right, wrong, or indifferent, where we have kind of strayed from the norm, is that um, philosophy is that you're selling something, right? So if you know every single thing about every industrial transaction in Western Pennsylvania, for example, then it's easy to walk into a room to a customer, not a client, but a customer, and say, I know every single thing that happened in the last six months, and that's the only thing that I know. Um, And so, therefore, that information can create opportunity for you, right? So it's, it's it's a philosophical thing that is, I know exactly what XYZ company paid for rent in this building right down the street. So therefore, I'm advising you better. But really, they're not advising you. They're trying to walk you into a transaction. Um, what? <laughs> no, you, it's all good. What? No, finish your thought because my thought was like a, a, for, a forward thought. Okay. So, <laughs> but I think the the client expects you to be able to say that's great that information is really important but i also want to know what's going on with my business in my exact situation and maybe that information's relevant maybe it's not relevant but i think that the industry has created a um an animal whereby you better need to know everything about that specific market and that product type Otherwise, you're useless, and I think we've kind of bucked the trend in yeah, that regard. I could also agree that you can know everything about every other real estate trans, every other industrial transaction that's happened in the nine county region of Western Pennsylvania. Right. And if you can't, we may need to cut this. <laughs> But if, you, if you're if you on a tour with someone who's interested in your property and you can't answer any questions about that specific property, I mean, or answer an email when someone reaches out to inquire about your property, I just think that uh, the general business... So, like, if you're representing a property, 
you know that the tenant's representation, when they send an email about the property, they greatly appreciate a prompt return with comprehensive information that they have asked for. Yep. So, <laughs> why doesn't that happen? Because they don't know. Because they've never been on the other side of it. Because they only know their specific That's what I'm thing. I mean, but that to so the so from a subject matter expertise standpoint, sure. But from into the customer's perspective. Well, hold on. The customer who only knows like this much. If you give them like the all these stats and all this information about that specific thing, they think you're. They think you know everything. They think you're smart. So they sign on the dotted line, even though they have no idea what's really going on. Because he's only giving you the brush strokes. Right. Of, of Literally pulling a co-star market report and regurgitating the information. Well, where, wherever, <laughs> right. he got, where, wherever he got the information, it's, it, you know, this kind of goes back to that's, you would find that that's someone who's typically working on the landlord side of the ball. And, you know, it's, what is everyone else getting? What is the market doing? I want to see every deal. Well, what you really want to do is you want to get the right transaction, the right tenant in your right building. Mm -hmm. You know, if you know everything about high bay warehouse space, but the guy who comes up to you happens to be looking for refrigerated space, you're, you're at a complete loss. You don't know how to, is this something we should be chasing? Is this something we should be talking about? You can't answer the right questions or the questions specific to that one person. And I, I think that... And they, combine that then, too, with the aspirations and the needs of your client that you're representing their building. Like, are they willing to make those investments to transform correct. a space in any way? Do they have something going on in their personal life that they just need out and quickly? Like, under being a versatile enough professional to understand all of the factors at play in a transaction... Anyone can add up two numbers and divide by the numbers in the equation and find the middle ground. So understanding all of the factors at play and leveraging them, I think, is the more important skill set than complete and utter knowledge of everything office that's happening or everything industrial that's yeah, happening. It's a, it's a complete, well-rounded and thorough knowledge of your craft. Now, I mean, the guy who only works in... Uh, you know, you can work specifically in office real estate. You know, there's, there's guys that have made a living in Manhattan by simply understanding what's going on in one block. One block, because literally. Because there's more real estate there than there is in all of Akron. Right. You know, so... Uh, God, it's, that would be so boring. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so glad that's not my not, life. No, but our there's... Life. Not our you know, life. They have the, you, you have the market knowledge and the market impact of what it is that you're doing, which is incredibly important to what we do. But then you have the principles of the practice. You have the principles to understand these are the elements of real estate that these are the things that you can be concerned with that are more business related than they are market related. And I'm not trying to diminish the market at all because the market moves every minute. You know, it's uh, you talked about the was it the one transaction you're working on in, in Texas? There's a Texas that the, the you submitted an offer at the asking price. It got rejected. It, no, you submitted an offer above the asking price. No, we submitted below the asking price. Below the asking price. It got rejected. And responded to above the asking price within a five-day period. Yeah, and the market went up that quickly. 
And wasn't it gone before you could even respond then? Yeah, and they didn't, oh, they, they chose not to respond back to you. Right. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's moving targets. And that's the same kind, you, you know, the information that you convey to your clients, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes you really don't want to hear this, you know, specifically regarding the operating expenses or the HVAC expense, but that's understanding, knowing what you what it is that, you know, you did and certainly don't make that same mistake again, but, you know, what are the ways, if any, to get out of it? I don't know how many calls we fielded. Uh, this would have been in April of 2020 to discuss force majeure clauses because of COVID. You know, it was... People started to look at their lease because, well, I have to find something in it. You should review your lease annually, maybe even more than that. Oh, my God, my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. I always tell people, review your lease every single year with your advisor, not your, your not broker your <laughs> or your landlord. But nobody does it because it, it just sits on a shelf. But, you know, who knows? There's a lot of moving parts to our industry. And I, I actually would disagree with the you have to be, uh, you know, specific in, in the services that you provide. I think you have to be very skilled and understand and very knowledgeable about all aspects of real estate. Let's just say you're working for a, a private equity company. They have warehouses. They have retail spaces. They have office spaces. You really should have a good understanding of the absolute business acumen. And then the market stuff, that I don't want to minimize it, but that's probably the easiest thing to find. But understanding the true aspect of what it is that they want to accomplish and understanding real estate as it is throughout the country. Yeah. Makes Michael, the most I think that's part. the second thing we agree on. <laughs> the second in, thing? In life. <laughs> All of life. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm still trying to figure out what the first was, by the way. Uh, it might have been this bourbon. <laughs> Yeah, what do you think about the bourbon? I like uh, it. I think it's outstanding. I think it's okay. Oh, no, I like this. No, I think it's good. My this first, is very my, good. I think this was my first bourbon since the last podcast. Okay. I can't say lie. that. That's a lie. That's probably not right. Yeah. That's <laughs> a lie. Yeah. But it's my first bourbon in a while. Yesterday. I can't say that either. <laughs> it's been two hours. No, uh... <laughs> So it, it, I also had a precursor beer, and so the bourbon hit a little harder <laughs> on first sip, <laughs> but I like it. No, I like it. I think it's uh, got an interesting bite when we started, but now it mellows out nicely. Yeah, I think it's good. I also, I got the bottle of, which we already still have some, uh, the Four Roses Single Barrel, which is like a step down from this one. Because I wanted to do a side by side, but I guess we'll we'll do that <laughs> we off do that. off camera. So Cheers. full circle, no. <laughs> so full circle. Um, it's an interesting space that we play in. There's lots of uh, advisors. There's lots of brokers. There's lots of transactions that happen, and I don't think we'll ever solve what that is. But we're really committed to the client, not the customer, and we're excited about it which is why we're so passionate and talk about it at length for too many hours probably. But we're very so thankful. Go for like two more. Yeah, we're very thankful to our client who sent this message that started off the podcast. Yes. Who uh, clearly recognizes the difference between client and customer and 
if you're watching, you know, thank you. And we look forward to round number three coming soon. All right. Take care.